thank you so much for your loving the Lord. It shows by your willingness to show up to church on Sunday night. Um, most people don't know that you're even supposed to go to church on Sunday night. And here you are. So thank you for that. Thank you for loving God and for your commitment to his house. Let's stand this evening. First Thessalonians 5. And we'll be reading from 14 down through verse 22. The Bible says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. We're going to return back to our series on the Holy Spirit that we departed when we began the series on the home. And tonight we're going to preach a sermon entitled this, A Quick Guide to Quench Not the Spirit. Let's pray. God, I ask tonight that you would uh, fill me with your power. Lord, fill me with your presence. Fill me with your purpose. And Lord, may the preaching of your word be accurate. May it be bold. Lord, we know your word cuts sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, God, not that I would fix or change a heart, but that your word would. Lord, bring us to a place of willingness, openness, about our relationship with the Holy Spirit inside of us. Lord, where that relationship is lacking, may we work to fix it this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, one of the fewest doctrines taught and preached about in Baptist churches around the world. Um, A lot of churches have allowed the Pentecostal movement to sort of have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is as real and as much part of God as God the Father and God the Son. And He is the part of God that indwells us. He is the most personable part of God to us, or rather He ought to be. You say, well, how do you get the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you? You understand, He does not start out indwelling human beings. The Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence inside of someone once they put their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They turn from their sin and they call out to God for salvation, as is described in Romans 10, 9-13. The Christian life and the success of it is based on our ability to yield to and follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. I think about the yield signs on the interstate. You know what that means? That means you're not supposed to bully your way into traffic. You're supposed to wait for an opening and move in then. How about the yield sign at a fork where two directions are coming together? The one with the yield is supposed to stop and give preference to the other. When your will and the Holy Spirit's will come to a fork in the road... Are you running the Holy Spirit in the ditch, or are you coming to a stop and letting the Holy Spirit lead? 
That's the success of the Christian life. It's not based on how talented you are or how well you speak or how much money you have or that you give or how faithful that you are to church. That's not the measurement of the Christian life. Now, prior to Family Month, we looked at several sermons about the Holy Spirit, four to be exact. Uh, we started out the series on the, uh, the title, Let's Meet the Holy Spirit. Uh, then we went and looked at how the Holy Spirit makes me holy. Then we talked about the role of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. And the last sermon that we covered was entitled, Grieve Not the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't expect you to remember the points of that sermon because you just listened to it. I preached it, and I had to go back and look at my notes to see what the points were. But uh, I think that before the sermon tonight on quenching the Holy Spirit, in order for us to be able to accurately contrast the two uh, thoughts and concepts, it would be a good idea for us to go back and briefly review the sermon on grieving the Holy Spirit so we can see the difference between that and quenching the Holy Spirit. If you could throw the uh, next slide up there. This was, uh, this was the, uh, this, these were the points to my sermon there, uh, that night. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we hold on to sinful habits. We hold on to sinful habits. We refuse to be renewed. We take advantage of His assurance and we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts. When we do these things, we are choosing through stubbornness and through the holding on and clinging to of sin to, uh, to um, uh, grieve the Holy Spirit within us. By the way, the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit proves in part that He is not just a spirit, but He is a person that dwells inside of us that has emotions just like we have. And I think about an adult child that is breaking and crushing the heart of a mom and dad that weep themselves to sleep because that child is choosing a path of wretchedness and pain and hurt. And the uh, the, the mother that lays awake at night with tears running off her cheeks into her earlobes and down onto the pillow, she's broken hearted over her child's decision making. And the Holy Spirit sits inside of us when we sin and we're stubborn about our sin and he grieves just the same way. Why do, we, why do we make the Holy Spirit grieve? We make the Holy Spirit grieve when He points out a sin habit in our life and we refuse to let it go. We make the Holy Spirit grieve when He says, Hey, I'm here to help you be renewed into a new man, a new woman. You're now a new creation, 1 Corinthians tells us in Jesus Christ. And you are to be renewed. And we say, No, 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 I want to cling to sin I want to cling to Egypt and the Egyptian way, going back to the analogy of the children of Israel in the wilderness. I want the leeks and the garlics. I, I want the, the fun that came along with the slavery. I want sin. I'm looking back at my life prior to salvation. I'm not looking at uh, the land that flows with milk and honey with uh, 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 grapes of, uh, uh, of clusters that have to be carried on a stick. I, I'm looking backwards. I'm not looking forward. And the God, uh, the Holy Spirit inside of us is grieved when we refuse out in our stubbornness to be renewed. He is uh, grieved when we take advantage of the assurance of our salvation. Oh, you're not going to lose your salvation. You can go out here and you can, uh, you can do any sin imaginable to mankind. And any Christian can commit any sin that a lost person can. And no, you won't lose your salvation. That salvation is permanent and it's 
final and you've been forgiven of every sin on an eternal scale when you got saved. But God, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God when we take advantage of that. And then it uh, grieves the Holy Spirit of God when we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts. Why? Because you've been forgiven of hell by God. Your sin nailed his son to a cross. He forgave you. And when we hold on to forgiveness, the Bible tells us that uh, that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. So that's the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, what about this concept of quenching the Holy Spirit? Quenching the Holy Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit when we extinguish the flame of righteousness that he lights inside of us. When I was a fifth grader, my mom was watching the after-school care at our Christian school, and some kids got hold of some matches and lit part of the football field on fire. And my mom was panicking, and she said, run in and get the fire extinguisher. So uh, I was one of the older kids on the playground. There happened to be a ninth-grade boy there that day. The two of us ran in, and we found a fire extinguisher. And we came out and we sprayed the chemicals on it and we extinguished the flames. Extinguished the flames. Uh, how many of you here have ever had to put out a small fire of some sorts? Can I see your hand? Had to put out a small fire of some sorts. And uh, that uh, is quenching the flame. You take it a bucket of water and you throw it on there. I, I like to light candles in my office and... Uh, manly smelling candles, amen, don't give me this girly frilly stuff. Um, uh, and one way I quench that flame is I put the lid on the candle and I, I cut off this, the oxygen source that supplies that candle and it is quenched, it is put out. Now, the Holy Spirit is trying to light a fire of righteousness and holiness inside of us. But we're too busy with our... Lifestyles, putting it out. And it can't ever pick up any momentum. It can't ever pick up any ground. It, it can't do a whole lot. When my dad was a, a little boy, uh, he was hanging out with uh, some older kids, and they got hold of some matches, and they were uh, playing in a field, and they would set a pile of leaves on fire, and they would stomp it out. And then they let it get a little bit bigger, and they'd stomp it out. There were seven or eight of them. And they'd get a little bit bigger, and they'd stomp it out. Well, it got to a point where they couldn't stomp it out. And so they did what any seven or eight year old boy would do, or they ran. <laughs> and, uh, and then, uh, they went and hid, and, and someone called the police and the fire department, and these fire trucks showed up, and the whole, uh, uh, the whole property was ablaze, and they returned to the scene of the crime. They showed up, and they stood in the back of the room and said, Oh, wow, look at this. What happened? What happened? I want that flame of the Holy Spirit to grow out of control in my life. I want it ablazing, but too often I find that I end up quenching that flame. And I keep the Holy Spirit from really doing what He wants to do. Now, the idea of God and fire, or God being described with fire, is all throughout the Bible. Hebrews 12.29 says this, Our God is a consuming fire. Um, there's the burning bush story in Exodus 3.2. There's the Shekinah glory in Exodus 14.9 and Numbers chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 15 and 16. 
There's Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1.4. And then in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is associated with or symbolized by fire a handful of times. You may remember that John the Baptist said about Jesus that he would baptize by the Holy Spirit and by fire, the association there. And then uh, when the New Testament church was uh, 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 started and filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, they had pillars of fire or tongues of fire that appeared on top of their head. Again, Holy Spirit and fire being connected to each other. So you say, well, Pastor uh, Lejeune, how is the Holy Spirit symbolized by fire? Let me give you three ways uh, quickly here by way of introduction that the Holy Spirit is uh, symbolized by fire. First of all, he brings God's presence. He brings God's presence. Now, you may remember in the Old Testament that fire, as long as the tabernacle was set up, the very, very first thing that was done once they had picked up and moved camp and set up the tabernacle again, one of the very, the very first thing that was done was that the lamp in the holy place was lit because the fire had to be lit in that tabernacle, inside of that tabernacle at all times. Once the temple was built, the fire of the candles, candlesticks had to be kept going 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 years, uh, days a year. It could not go out. Why? Because that fire represented It was symbolic of God's presence being amongst his people. Now, Christian, you are the New Testament temple. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. He is that fire. He is that presence of God that exists inside of you, that indwelling. And just as the fire had to be present in the tabernacle and in the temple, the fire of God uh, is present inside of each one of his believers in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so what does the Holy Spirit, uh, how does he tie in to fire? Well, he brings about God's presence in the life of the believer. The second way that the Holy Spirit is like fire is that he brings God's passion. He brings God's passion. It was, it was the uh, passion of the Holy Spirit that, that burned inside the hearts of the apostles. This passion caused them to take the gospel around the globe and do so in the face of great danger. Do so in the face of persecution. Do so in the face of martyrdom. Oh, the brutal ways that these men were killed. How were they able to do that? They had a passion burning in their bones. I'm doing this because the Holy Spirit's fire is ablaze in my life and there's a passion inside of me. And Paul, you may have been stoned and left dead. You may have been beaten uh, with, uh, with a whip. You may have been beaten with a rod. You may have been uh, uh, shipwrecked twice. You may have been left the day and the night in the deep. But Paul said, uh, I'm going to get up and I'm going to keep on going and I'm going to keep on serving and I'm going to keep on loving and I'm going to keep on giving because the Holy Spirit is inside of me. And just as a fire blazes with great passion, there is a passion to reach the lost and to further the cause of Christ in my heart. The Holy Spirit is symbolic of fire because it brings God's presence. He's symbolic of fire because He brings God's passion, but He's symbolic of fire because He brings God's purity, His purity. What do you use if you want to purify precious metals? You use fire. The fire of the Holy Spirit is doing a work in the heart of every believer. He's constantly working to 
purify your heart from sin and unrighteousness. He's constantly working to shape us into the image and likeness of, of Jesus. You know, uh, I can think back to very, very vivid, painful times in my life where God has turned up the heat of the fire of the Holy Spirit in my life, made me very uncomfortable, made me miserable. I was reflecting back on that just this morning, thinking about a time in my life where I was miserable for several months. I look back on that and I can see that God was working to refine me and change me. You say, well, should the Holy Spirit be in the business of making someone miserable? If it's going to pull out the dross and make them more pure, then yes. Then yes. Now we turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians 5 and we look at verse number 19. And in the midst of all of these short commands, we find this verse. Quench not the Spirit. Quench not the Spirit. How do you quench the Spirit? By throwing water on the fire. How do you do that? By throwing the water of growth, refusal, growth, refusal, and self-centeredness on that fire. Now, interestingly enough, right in the middle of these short commands, you find that verse, quench not the Spirit. God is telling us that if we... Don't do these things that he's telling us to do in 1 Thessalonians 5. Then we will throw water on the fire of the Holy Spirit within our temple. Within each and every one of our temples. Now, I propose that many Christians are not becoming like Christ because they are not yielded to the Holy Spirit's leadings and guidings in their hearts. I propose that if we will let the fire of the Holy Spirit grow and burn within us, we will have God's presence felt stronger in our lives. His passion driving us and His purity refining us. So let's take these short commands in chapter 5 and see how they are grouped into three categories. This passage is a guide that teaches us how not to quench the fire of the Holy Spirit within us. Before I get into the three categories, let me just say, if I could pull back the curtain of my study, just for a moment, if I could, uh, Pastor Lejeune puts a lot of sermons together. I preach here three times a week regularly. I have studied and sat under many good preachers who are good outliners of passages in Bible, and I have a lot of practice and experience at uh, reading and uh, digesting a passage and trying to my best to pull out uh, the meaning of it and put it in a way that is palatable and enjoyable. And I, I hope that you appreciate the effort that your pastor puts in to Bible study. I'm not here trying to toot my horn or elevate me. I'll just say this, is that this was the toughest sermon I have put together in a very long time. I worked and worked and worked and worked on this sermon and was having a very hard time outlining it and understanding it and trying to uh, uh, get it to work. And uh, I even looked at commentaries, which I normally don't do that early on in the process, and had a very difficult time, uh, even in commentaries, uh, finding things that made sense and would help me. And uh, finally, God, uh, through much prayer uh, and, and, and pleading out to the Lord to help me with this sermon, God showed me and the light broke through. And I believe that these commands... In 1 Thessalonians 5, these short little commands all fit below three separate 
categories. And uh, it will help us as we uh, digest these to see them and understand them. And these three categories we can work hard at so that we can not quench the Holy Spirit of God. Let's jump in and see how these uh, uh, fall uh, in, in the passage this evening. Number one, notice our action toward broke, our actions toward broken people. Our actions toward broken people. Look at Rome, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 there. Look at the emphasis on broken people. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. That's a broken person. Comfort the feeble-minded. More about that in a minute, but that's a broken person. Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. You don't have to be patient with someone that does everything right. You have to be patient with someone who's getting on your last nerve. See that none render evil for evil unto any man. Why do you give evil to someone? Because they're evil, because they're broken. Let's take these one at a time and and move through them quickly. Warn them that are unruly. It says there in verse number uh, uh, 14. Let me give you some examples of an unruly person. Little children are all unruly. You were unruly at one point. You came out of the wound screaming and crying, and you kept your mom awake at night. You didn't know how to listen. The Bible says here that if you're going to not quench the Holy Spirit, parents, parents, you've got to warn your unruly children. Occasionally, I am allowed to have a glimpse into a window of what my children would be like if they didn't have a mother who was so firm in disciplining them and a father who, when he was home, did the same. Occasionally, I'm able to see a little glimpse of rebellion popping out of their heart when they're under someone else's authority who isn't quite as firm with them. Occasionally, they'll misbehave for us, and we have to punish all children. Every child is born with a sinful heart that's unruly, that does not want to follow the rules, that does not want to obey. And parents, you must warn them of what's going to happen to them if they don't listen, if they don't learn to follow, if they don't learn discipline in their life. What other types of people are unruly? Well, those who lack character. Those who lack character. I've met many adults who are unruly. They don't know how to follow the rules. They don't know how to follow the laws. They steal, they kill, they destroy, they uh, drug, they do all these various things. And what it comes down to is because they weren't taught as children how to be disciplined and follow a set of rules and get up in the morning and, 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 and how to brush their teeth and comb their hair and shower every day and do what's right, because they didn't learn those things as a child, then what they are as an adult is they're the same thing in an adult body. They lack that character. And the Bible tells us that in the right spirit, we are to warn the unruly, we're to help those that are broken. Here's another crowd that's unruly. Those who neglect Christ. Those who neglect Christ. Oh, I see many people in our broken world today. They want nothing to do with Jesus. And it seems like the further that they as individuals and collectively as a culture get away from Christ, the more unruly they become. You see, we for several decades now, and really probably even close to a century or century and a half, we have believed that we can be moral without the God of morality. And we have seen what has happened when you remove the God of morality from morality. They have neglected Christ. They have become unruly. And we have been commanded to warn them of the impending danger. 
Let me just say this here, when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that flame inside of you, leads you to warn these crowds and you do not do it, you are quenching the Spirit and putting out the flame of righteousness in you. Uh, the second command there in Rome, or 1 Thessalonians 5, rather, is that we are to comfort the feeble-minded. Comfort the feeble-minded. Anybody's name come to mind when I say feeble-minded? Now, be nice. Be nice. For years, when I read that word feeble-minded, up until I studied for the sermon, I, I thought that meant someone who may, maybe wasn't all the way there. The elevator didn't reach the top. You know, the... Uh, the bulb, uh, the, the, they weren't the brightest bulb in the janitor's closet. They're a few french fries short of a Happy Meal. And there are probably some other ones out there, right? But that's not what that means. That word feeble-minded, I looked it up. That word feeble-minded means faint-hearted. It means discouraged. It means despondent. You know anybody in your life that's discouraged right now? The Bible has commanded us to comfort them. Now, what does that word comfort mean? We're going to get technical tonight, but it's important. That word comfort means to encourage, to lift up one's spirits. So, if I come along a discouraged person and I breathe out encouragement to them, but they're not encouraged, have I comforted them? Not totally. Not totally. You You know what we're really good at as Christians? We're really good, don't miss this here, this is the only thing you get out of church tonight, it's worth your trip here. We're really good at giving drive-by comfort. Hey, it's going to be alright, smile, Jesus loves you. I comforted them. And they go to bed at night just as depressed as they were when you stop by. If we're going to comfort or encourage the discouraged We've got to find a discouraged person. We've got to connect ourselves to their hip. And we've got to stay with it until we pull them out of the gutter of discouragement and we put them on a place where they're not, uh, uh, they're not, uh, uh, the Bible says, uh, the, the, uh, uh, they're not feeble-minded. They're strong-minded. They're trusting in the Lord. They're encouraged. They're lifted up. That we stay with them until we have converted them from a place of being discouraged to a place of encouragement. The Holy Spirit says to you, hey, you see that person on the other side of the auditorium? They haven't been in church in a month. They just showed up. Maybe they need a kind word. Maybe they're going through a hard time. Maybe they've been sick. Why don't you go over and check on them? Or maybe you're a Sunday school teacher and you notice that you've had some people that haven't been in class in a while. You don't think to yourself, well, uh, when are they finally going to get faithful? No. You pick up the phone and you call them and you say, what's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? How can I pick you up? How can I encourage you? And you stay with it. And you stay with it. And you stay with it. As long as the Holy Spirit's prodding you to encourage them, you don't give that drive-by encouragement. You comfort the feeble-minded, the faint-hearted, the discouraged, the despondent. How are we to, uh, how are our actions toward broken people? Well, the Bible tells us there that we're to support the weak. We're to support the weak. You can measure the character and morality of a country based on how they treat their weak. How we do in America? Our parents and grandparents are subbed in nursing homes while we're out playing golf and running errands. Now there's a place in time where assisted living is necessary when we can't medically take care of them. And you may have to put your parent in a nursing home. 
But it ought to be a last resort. And if you do, hear me out. If you do, you should visit them regularly, several times a week. You say, oh, that's an inconvenience. You show me how a person treats the weak, I'll show you their character. I'll show you their devotion. I'll show you who they are deep down inside. We're to support, uh, pick up the weak. Now, that word weak means unable. It means morally weak or physically ill. And that word support means to help, to cling to a belief, to help or to cling to a belief. And so you see a person that's broken. Maybe they're broken physically and they're uh, ill and they're sick. Or maybe they're broken morally and they just can't seem to pick themselves up out of the gutter, gutter, we're to come along and we're to support the weak. How about this one? We're to be patient toward all men. It is natural to grow impatient toward, uh, toward these broken people, aren't we? You, you see an unruly person and you say, how many times do I have to tell you to stop misbehaving? You, you see someone who's feeble-minded and, you, and you, you get frustrated with them and you say, why are you always so depressed and discouraged? Just get over it. That's the worst thing you can say to someone who's discouraged. How many of you here have ever been, uh, don't raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you here have ever been in a point of depression where you knew what to do, you just couldn't do it. it you knew you were lost in, in the jungle of depression and you tried to find your way out, you just couldn't do it. This past week we've had two uh, celebrities commit suicide. Kate Spade and then a gentleman who worked for CNN as a newscaster. Two public faces commit suicide. Everything inside of us screams, protect yourself. You ever get near the edge of a cliff? Everything in your body says, warning, 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 back up, back up, back up. Your legs tense, your backside tenses, your back tenses. Back up, back up. We're not built to commit suicide. We're not built that way. You see someone who's despondent and discouraged and you've tried several times to cheer them up and they're not coming along and you think, just snap out of it. The Bible says you're to be patient toward all men. How are you doing with that, Christian? One day you might find yourself in a place of depression. You treat others with patience the way you would want to be treated. How many times you say to yourself, am I going to have to bail you out of this financial spot? Or why are you sick all the time? Or why are you so spiritually weak that you can't overcome that temptation, and that downtrodden spot? Uh, uh, you need to pick yourself up and you get impatient. What we need to deal with these broken people is we need an extra helping of patience from God. It says there, or the Bible rather tells us, let patience have her perfect work. We must be patient with people so that perfect work can be worked. And then verse, uh, uh, verse number 15 there says, See that none render evil for evil. You know what happens when we get impatient with people and they do us wrong? We do them wrong back. We do them wrong back. By the way, this is the attitude that a mom and dad develop with their children. Well, if he, he calls you a name, you just punch him in the mouth. And where does that line up with Scripture? I thought the Bible taught to turn the other cheek. We're not to return evil for evil. We're to love because charity never fails. So how do you quench the Holy Spirit? Well, grow impatient with people and return evil for evil. Don't encourage the discouraged and don't support the weak and don't love on uh, uh, those who are uh, unruly and don't warn them. Don't warn them with a humble spirit. 
If you want to uh, have the flame of the Holy Spirit ablaze in your life, then you make sure that you have the correct attitude toward broken people. Number two, notice our attitude toward biblical precepts. Our attitude toward biblical precepts. Look with me at verse 15 again. Uh, the second part of the verse says, But uh, ever follow or always follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Verse 16, Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The attention's turned away from broken people, and it's turned toward some biblical precepts, these short commands they have to do with God's Word and how we respond to God's Word and how we uh, have our Christian walk with God. Uh, quickly here, notice the first one in the second half of 15 says, Follow that which is good. That word follow is an interesting word. That word follow means to pursue with great effort. It means to strive forward. Uh, we're to uh, pursue with great effort. We're to strive or, or break a sweat or work hard moving forward. And that, uh, we're, what are we to follow? Well, we're to follow that which is good. That which is, uh, that word good means positive moral qualities of the of most general nature. Positive moral qualities. Where do we turn to to learn that which is good? Well, we turn to the Bible. And who do we turn to? Who do we follow so we know that which is good? Well, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to read our Bibles and we need to study the life of Jesus in the New Testament. And we need to model our life after its teachings and what it says. We're to follow, be disciples of that which is good. Notice the next one there in verse number 16. Rejoice evermore. Now, what is joy? Joy is an internal gladness that comes from having peace with God. When I have made my peace with God, I have a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. And it, it, it is there during the trials. It is there during the troubles. And when I turn on the spigot of joy in my heart that's only available to a Christian, boy, it flows freely inside of me. And so tonight, I want to encourage us that we are not just to have joy, but we're to rejoy or rejoice in the goodness of God. Really quick tonight, who has something good they want to uh, uh, shout out about uh, God? Just really quick, someone uh, uh, just shout out and tell me uh, uh, something about God that, that, that's good. He's faithful. Someone else. He forgives. He's gracious. He protects us. He's long-suffering. Anybody else? Many, many, many things to rejoice over. Let me ask you a question tonight. When was the last time you had a rejoicing spell? Oh, we have complaining spells all the time, don't we? That guy just cut me off in traffic. That was to cover up what you actually say, all right? Um... You know, my toast is burned. Why do you burn my toast every morning? Or, and I'm not saying that, that doesn't happen to me, amen. Um, but we find things to complain about. Man, these coworkers, when are they going to pick up their slack? I do everything around here. I'm tired of doing everything around here. Uh, uh, or we complain about, uh, we, we complain about, uh, how far the commute is somewhere or, or, or the behavior, uh, uh, of someone in our life that we don't like or maybe a, a physical problem that we have and we complain and complain and complain. And the Bible tells us, hey, if you don't want to throw water on the fire of the Holy Spirit, then instead of complaining, rejoice. Evermore, uh, break out in a rejoicing spell. I love that when I get on the shuttle bus on Sunday mornings, that Brother Russo back there, he is encouraging everyone to break out in song. 
You know what he's doing? He's trying to say, hey, everybody, I'm joyous. Why don't you rejoice with me? And that's how we that's how we keep the blaze of the Holy Spirit alive in our heart. That next one there says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Verse number 17. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me read you a couple of the verses. Colossians 1, 3, Paul said, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Praying without ceasing. Praying always for you. 2 Thessalonians. Look over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It should just be a page to the right there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Wherefore also we pray always for you. We pray always for you. So, did that mean that Paul walked around everywhere with his head bowed and eyes closed? Dear Lord, I thank you for the Colossians, and I thank you for the church at Thessalonica, and I thank you for the church at Corinth, and I'm thankful for that, I'm thankful for that. Does that mean that he walked around and said, bowed nice clothes all the time? By the way, don't do that while you're driving. We were going on a trip somewhere, I was taking someone somewhere, and I said, hey, let's pray before we get going here. And I think we were going out soul winning, I'm trying to remember who it was, the person's probably in here, you know, I think it was Brother Mike Surratt. Brother Mike, you in here? We were going soul winning together, and we were leaving the parking lot, I said, let's pray. I started praying while I was driving, and he he, he looked. He picked his head up and he looked over at me, and I looked over at him, and he said, "I'm just making sure your eyes are open." <laughs> I say, "Yeah, my eyes are open." So, but uh, is that what that means? That's not what that means. What does it mean then? We're literalists, right? We take the Bible literally. Pray without ceasing. Let me explain to you practically and literally what that means. You ought to have your sins confessed and your heart tender toward God. And when the Holy Spirit moves in your heart and says, hey, right now I want you to pray for this person, immediately you say, yes, sir, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help that person with this struggle they're going through or that they would get this or that. And God, you're in constant communication with the Lord. Pray without ceasing. Some of us would have to confess sins for 30 minutes or even try to pray. Keep a short list with God. Pray, confess. Have a tender heart. Billy Sunday's wife used to say about him, she'd say, uh, uh, he'll, I'll be talking to him, and then all of a sudden, he'll just start, to, he'll, he's talking to me, all of a sudden, he'll just start talking to the Lord. And I don't know if he's talking to me or talking to God. And i got to ask him, who are you talking to right now? He was, he was so in tune with God and so in touch with God that he had an ongoing conversation with God all day. And that's what that means. Pray without ceasing. Now, Christian, you're not going to start there tonight unless you've been working on this for a while. But you ought to get to a place where every time that you have a need or a decision to make, you drop your head and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? I want to do this your way. In all my ways, I want to acknowledge you so you'll direct my path. Our attitude toward biblical precepts. Notice there, in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God, verse 18 tells us, in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, this one can be tough. How do we give thanks when, when we have a fight with our spouse? Lord, thank you for allowing me to fight with my spouse. Probably not a prayer to pray, right? How do you give thanks when your loved one that was lost just passed away? You know they went to hell. How do you give thanks when your house burns to the ground? And everything you had is inside and you had no insurance to cover it. How do you give thanks when you get fired or when you run out of unemployment funds? How do you give thanks when you or a loved one gets cancer? These are tough questions, aren't they? 
We give thanks to God during these tough times by understanding who He is and in comparison who we are and what the purpose is that He created for us. He created us to please Him. And you can say like Job, naked I came into this world and naked I will leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in the toughest of times, even Job found a way to thank God and worship Him. Boy, I know this, that when a tough time comes my way, I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit by throwing water on that flame in my heart. Number one, we see our actions toward broken people. Number two, our attitudes toward Bible precepts. I'll be quick on this one. Number three, notice our, uh, our, rather our attitude toward biblical precepts. Number three, our actions toward biblical preaching. Look at verse 20. It says there, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Now this is a sequence here. This is a sequence of how we are to handle preaching. That word prophesying here in this passage means preachings or sermons. We're not to despise preaching. Now, the word preach is in the Bible 138 times. Preaching is important to God. Let me say this evening that how I preach, it matters to God. What I preach even uh, matters even more to God. But ultimately, what you do with the preaching of God's Word matters supremely. What you do with the preaching of this book as it lands in your ears, that matters supremely. You are not to despise it. You're not to shrug it off or push it away. You are to embrace it. You're to say, Lord, when the preaching's hot in my face, thank you for it. Show me what I need. When it's comforting to me in a tough time, thank you for it. Help me to embrace it so it can pick me up. But whatever the preaching is, the Bible says we're not to despise it. We're not to despise it. Notice the, notice the continuation here or the add-on to that thought. The next phrase, prove all Things. Prove all things. Now, keeping this in context with the verse above, Paul is saying that you need to prove or confirm that the sermons you're hearing are sound doctrine and are true to the Bible. You know what makes this church different from many, many other churches? If I preach something that isn't biblical, I want you to come tell me. Because it's not my opinion or my version that matters. It's what this says that matters. We hold the Word of God high and supreme above all things. That's why I chuck every sermon I preach filled with lots of Scripture, and we're commanded to prove the sermons. Now, you may remember the praise that was heaped on the church of Berea. Now, remember, we're in which book? Which book are we in? Thessalonians was written to who? The Th- those, at the, those who lived in Thessalonica. The Thessalonians. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Listen to Acts 17.11. It says, These, speaking of the church of Berea, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. So what, what were the Thessalonians guilty of? They were guilty of being gullible. So I get up and preach to them and they say, Oh, oh, yeah. Man, he said that with a lot of verbose. He said that with power. He said that with excitement. Yeah, that must be right. The church of Berea, rather, went home and they opened up the Bible. 
The portion of it they had, and they said, let me see if what he's saying matches up with Scripture. Now, you are to come to church, and you're to listen to the preaching that happens in this pulpit, whether it's me or someone else. You're to listen to the teacher, uh, the teaching that happens in your Sunday school class, whoever that is. You're to listen to the teaching and preaching of the Bible with a critical ear, but not a skeptical ear. A critical ear, but not a skeptical ear. What do I mean? You ought to have your antenna up. And if something's said, and you go, ah, no, no, that's not in the Bible. Okay, well then ask yourself this. Is it against the Bible? If it's not against the Bible, then leave it in that neutral ground. If it's against the Bible, then come talk to me. Whether it's me or a teacher, come talk to me. However, coming to church with a skeptical ear is, ah, everything that preacher says is wrong. Look, why do you come to a church if you don't agree with anything the preacher says? Why do you go to church if you're just looking to nitpick the preacher? Don't do that. Don't do that. We're to prove. We're to prove all things. The next one there says we're to hold fast to that which is good. Let me say this tonight. Value God's word, not my opinion. If the preaching you're listening to matches up with the Bible, but not your heart. Okay, again, I'm preaching. And you look at it and you go, yep, it matches up with the scripture, but it doesn't match up with my heart. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to hold fast to that which is good in the preaching of the Bible? Or are you going to continue to live in contradiction of the preaching in the Bible? If the preaching matches the Bible and it doesn't match your life, then hold fast to that which is good. Cling to it and say, Lord, my life is not in line, but I want it to be. Change me, Lord. Change me. And if you can come to heart with the church with that attitude, it will just be a matter of time before God begins to do a revolutionary work in your life. And then the last truth that this uh, stacks on top of here when it comes to our attitude toward Bible preaching, abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, many Christians, they like to live on the spiritual edge. How close can I get to the edge of sin without falling into sin? How, how close can I walk? How, 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 how close can I dress uh, to being uh, uh, sinful without being sin? How, what music can I listen to is right on the edge? Listen, that's a very immature way to live. Very immature way to live. Listen, Christian. The immature Christian says this. Well, what's wrong with this or that? What's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong? Show me in the Bible where it's wrong. The mature Christian says, what's right with it? Is that show going to make me more like Jesus or less like Jesus? Is that show not only going to make me more or less like Jesus, is that show going to help me to become exactly the Christian he wants me to be? Okay, then I'm not going to waste my time on it. I'm not going to give myself to that. Is, is that outfit or that song or, or, or that entertainment or that person or that activity going to bring me in line with Christ or push me away? And a Christian says, I'm going to abstain from any and all appearances of evil. Christian, tonight, I don't want us, I don't want myself to throw water on the Holy Spirit's flame of righteousness in my heart. I want to yield to that. I want all of us to yield to that. Are you regularly quenching the fire of the Holy Spirit within you? Is His flame alive and raging in your heart? Do you feel the warmth of His presence? Do you feel His passion to do the work of the Lord? Is He purging and 
purifying you to be more like Christ. If he isn't, then it could be that you're quenching the Spirit. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Lord, thank you for the preaching of your word. Thank you for the accuracy of your word. Thank you for the life-changing truths that are there if we'll embrace them. Lord, we touched on an array of topics tonight because the concept of quenching your spirit covers an array of topics. God, would you help us to evaluate where we fall short and to make those changes. In Jesus' name. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, let's stand to our feet. The altar's open and the invitation's beginning. How about it tonight, Christian? Are you quenching the Holy Spirit in your life or is He alive and well? Is He ablaze in your heart? Ablaze in your heart. Oh, to be like Jesus. Oh, to have His Holy Spirit's presence and power evident in our lives.